Today's show is made possible by Fittery. You've probably purchased some dress and casual shirts online before, and sadly, you've probably had to return many of those items because they just didn't fit. Now, you do realize, of course, that billions are spent returning all of these poorly fitting clothes, right? Well, the madness can stop. The hassle of having to return all of this stuff can stop. Well, this is where Fittery comes in. They've devised a process by which you can almost guarantee that the dress and casual shirts you buy online will fit. And from brand names you'll recognize, Brooks Brothers, J. Crew, Land's End, Ralph Lauren, to name just a few. And they're adding more brands every day. Now, I myself use Fittery, and setting up my account was very simple and took almost zero time. Just go to fittery.com intrepid, complete the quick size tool, and you'll soon be ordering dress and casual shirts that actually fit. Again, that's fittery.com intrepid. You'll love Fittery, and you'll actually enjoy and look forward to ordering clothes online again. Let's do this. We're going live in five, four, three. Oh my, just so many business podcasts out there. How can I possibly know where to begin? Here at Intrepid Business, we are about stripping away all of the usual boring fluff and instead focus on showcasing real people doing real business, achieving amazing things the ones truly changing the world, the instigators making a dent, the people changing how we do sales and marketing, leading innovation, the people redefining leadership. But who are these people? Why do they do what they do? How do they do what they do? Find out on Intrepid Business. And now, here are your hosts. Good morning, and welcome back to Intrepid Business. I am your host, Todd Schneck. I think after today's conversation, uh, we're going to add to the definition of what exactly an intrepid business is, and I hope it starts uh, to take the shape of what we're going to talk about today with today's guest, a very important book about a a very important subject, one that I think is, is, oh gosh, so necessary, so important in today's world. Let's get to it. I'm joined this morning by Shell Horowitz. He is the transformpreneur, and he's a co-author of a new book called Guerrilla Marketing to Heal the World, Combining Principles and Profit to Create the World We Want. Shell, welcome to the show. Thanks, Todd. It's great to be here, and I love being called intrepid. It's one of my favorite words. Well, I named a whole darn company after it, so <laughs> it's one of my favorite words, too. So so good stuff. Well, Shell, I'm, I'm certain our audience is familiar with you and your work, uh, but before we dive into the book, take a few quick seconds, uh, inform us a bit about you and your background. Sure. Well, I've been doing both marketing and business stuff and also social activism and environmental activism for more than 40 years. And really, starting around 2000, I started looking at ways to bring those two pieces of my life together. And uh, what inspired that really was that I had been very heavily involved. I actually founded the organization that beat back a very nasty housing project proposed for our local mountain. 
And this was while all the experts were saying, oh, this is terrible, but there's nothing we can do. We went off, organized a movement, used everything I knew about marketing and everything I knew about organizing, got literally thousands of people involved and beat the thing in 13 months flat. So on the heels of that success and thinking, well, gee, I've just done this thing where I combined my two great passions in life. Can I make a career out of that? Yeah. So that led me, back then you'll remember, this was the time that Enron and WorldCom and some of those other business scandals were hitting the front pages all the time. So I started looking kind of more deeply at what makes a successful long-term business an ethical one. And that led me very quickly to embrace the beginning groundswell of interest in, in green business. Of course, green business has been around since many decades earlier, but it was really very marginal until about that time it started to get some traction. And then that led me in the last few years to really think about, well, going green isn't enough. We still have hunger and poverty and catastrophic climate change and all these other icky things to deal with. Are there ways that business can actually address these things in their core, not just with their charity? So that's the short answer of how I got to do this book and how I got here. Well, appreciate all your important work over all those years. You know, Shell, normally when I interview authors on this show, it's about someone who's written another book on leadership or on innovation or on sales or on marketing. And I always ask a question. And I ask it very seriously. I don't mean to be flippant, but I say, why did the world need yet another book on this subject? Because it always drills down in, into their true motivation as to why they put their time and love and blood and sweat and tears into that book. I don't really have to ask you that question because we know why you needed to read uh, to write this book because it's so important, so needed. So what, what do you hope to accomplish with this? I mean, when 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 this gets out into the world and people consume it and share it and talk about it and listen to interviews about it. What do you hope happens? What I hope is that enough businesses will start to look at their own operations and look for ways to build products and services into their company core that are addressing these huge issues and making a difference in people's lives as well as profit, that the tide will turn and that within a decade or two, that will be the way business is done, and that the old-style business just for the sole purpose of bottom line will be replaced by this much broader, more holistic look. And I really do think we can get there, Todd. I think we, we know how to do these things. That's the interesting thing. If you look at hunger and poverty and war and climate change, a lot of commonality is there, and the commonality is basically resources. How we use them, who gets to use them, how much is wasted, how much is recycled. When you look at those things holistically, like just as an example, hunger, you can't tell me that we have a problem with not enough food when we are throwing away a third of the food we create. Okay, we've got problems in the distribution, heck yeah, but we do not have a problem with the quantity. So looking at how can a business look at that one statistic and make a difference in the world? Maybe it's creating a training program to help inner city kids start rooftop farms. Who knows? You know, there's a lot of different ways it could go. Uh, some of my favorite companies are ones that are really addressing many of these at once. For example, in the book, I talk about Delight, which is one of at least three companies that has started selling for profit solar-powered LED lanterns in developing countries. Now you say, what is the big deal about solar-powered LED lanterns? Here's the big deal. They're replacing kerosene. 
Now, kerosene, a lot of problems with kerosene. First of all, it's a huge fire hazard. The number of people killed and maimed in kerosene fires every year is just obscene. Second, it's not a renewable resource, so the family has to pay some hard-earned dollars or shekels or, or quat or, or yuan or whatever it is every month to pay for that kerosene from now until eternity. Third, the kerosene gives off toxic fumes, so there's a health issue. And fourth, it's crappy light. <laughs> yeah. So by, by replacing that with the solar LEDs, and typically these companies will fund the purchase on the basis of what the family had been paying for kerosene. So let's say for the first 10 months, they're paying $2 a month, and then they own the lamp free and clear. And if you're making $20, $30 a month, having $2 a month extra in disposable income, that is huge. Okay, but you're also not breathing the toxic fumes. You've eliminated the fire risk. You're, you're not polluting the environment with this stuff, and the light is of sufficiently better quality, just orders of magnitude better, that maybe the parents can now do a cottage industry after a day working in the farm fields. Maybe the kids can do an extra hour, hour and a half of homework every day and get better grades in school and then eventually better careers. So this $20 lamp is a ladder out of poverty. Well, I could listen to you all day talk about those kinds of examples and those kinds of stories, and, and yet it does it does make me smile. It does give me hope. But let me I have to ask you this question, and I'm sure it's not the first time you've been asked this question. I mean, you talk about some of the problems that, that are of importance to you, uh, hunger and poverty and war and, and the climate situation. I, I agree with you 110% that those are problems that we as a, as a people can solve. My question to you is, and I don't mean no pun intended here, I just don't know, is there, is there a hunger out there to actually solve them? I mean, I, I, people out there are so cynical, they're so disappointed and let down by our leaders and our supposed role models that there just does not seem to be this will to, to really combat these things. I mean, what, what do you say to that? I mean, I, I don't want to feel that way, but every day we read some story about some terrorist who bombed some airport and just people are are they beginning to say there's just no hope here what do you how do you address that that concern well it is dismal but you have to look at the millennials you have to look at the kids who are younger than the millennials the people who have not yet had the hope beaten out of them and you have to look at the power of one person to make a difference yeah okay ordinary people have been changing the world forever look at Martin Luther King, okay? He was, who was he before the, the Montgomery bus boycott? He was the pastor of a small church in, in Alabama. Nobody knew who he was. Who was like Valesa before he was founding Solidarity and before he became the president of Poland? He was a shipyard worker. Mm. Mother Teresa was just some nun working in Calcutta. All of these are ordinary people that stepped up to greatness when it was offered to them. You know, Gandhi, Gandhi was a lawyer. He never had any interest in a career as an overthrower of government until he got thrown off a train in segregated South Africa for being the wrong color. And that led him on a path that eventually forced the British out of India. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah, well. So all of us can make a difference. I mean, I'm one guy working from a farmhouse and I helped save a mountain. And I don't think I'm done with the impact that I'm going to have on the world. So look around for the positive examples. If you watch TV news, it's very, very easy to get sucked into the negativity. I try not to watch TV news. Obviously, there are places like airports and more and more often even elevators where you can't avoid it. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, I, I surround myself with positive news. There are so many. I, I read things like Triple Pundit and some of the other green business 
press, and occasionally I'll see magazines like Yes that really focus on what people are doing right in the world. And if you fill your head with that kind of message, you get that kind of message. You know, uh, Henry Ford once said, whether a, a man thinks he can do a thing or thinks he cannot do a thing, he's right. Mm-hmm. Now, well, forget about his gender bias. He's writing this in, I think, the 20s. So give, give him, he might have phrased it differently today. But, you know, basically, we can do what we think we can. Let me just actually, there's this wonderful quote by Muhammad Ali that's in the book. Impossible is just a big word thrown around by small men who find it easier to live in the world they've been given than to explore the power they have to change it. Impossible is not a fact. It's an opinion. Impossible is not a declaration. It's a dare. Impossible is potential. Impossible is temporary. Impossible is nothing. Muhammad Ali. And on that note, we'll go to break. Shell Horowitz and I will return. We'll be right back. Golden Source Consultants is a different kind of management consulting firm. Like their logo, The Lion, the firm represents the courage and ability to overcome difficulties. Once and for all, GSC is dedicated to helping clients solve critical challenges, tackling organizational change and business transformation with turnkey solutions and agile project cycles. The lasting value of their work is seen and felt in their clients' ability to sustain improvement and meet business objectives long after the project is complete. Join Golden Source in their fresh approach to problem solving by contacting them at 404-692-5540 or learn more about them online at goldensourceconsultants.com. All right, we are back with Shell Horowitz, the transformpreneur and the co-author of a brand new book, Guerrilla Marketing to Heal the World, Combining Principles and Profit to Create the World We Want. All right, so Shell, those same cynics that I mentioned at the end of the first segment, when they say combining principles and profit, come on, is that, that's not possible. How do, you, how do you answer that? Actually, not only is it possible, it's easier. You will find, if you look around, that companies that incorporate deep principles into their MO are very, very successful. You know, how is it that, okay, this little upstart pipsqueak company in Vermont, of all places, can own half the super premium ice cream market, Ben & Jerry's? I'm going to posit that the way Ben & Jerry's got to that position was because people knew they're out there supporting solar energy, they're out there providing programs to hire workers with developmental disabilities. You know, everything they do is congruent. And so if you're standing there in the supermarket facing a choice of where are you going to spend your $4? Is it going to be on this cool little company whose packages are fun to read and who is doing good in the world? Or is it going to be the Exxon of ice cream, that cold corporate thing right next to it? And you're going to go with the Ben and Jerry's because you want your money to do good in the world. You know, my friend Dean Sikon, who runs a socially conscious coffee company, has done extremely well with... I won't say zero marketing budget, but a a tiny sliver of what some of these other companies have. And he's become a factor in the whole coffee industry, proving that you can run a successful coffee company that's 100% organic, 100% fair trade from the day he ground his first bean in 1993, I think it was, through today. And also that he's able to funnel back huge amounts of investment into village-led, village-designed improvement products, projects, in the areas where his coffee is grown. And that could be anything from a training on how men can avoid the trap of domestic violence, 
on up to like building a well in a community that's never had one. So it's amazing. There are, there are dozens, probably hundreds of companies that are really out there to do good in the world. And there are also companies that have discovered that their bottom line is helped when they do good in the world, even if it's not part of their corporate DNA and even if it's not really their values. But they can make money and save money, so they do it. Well, I agree with you when you say, in answer to that last question, that, yeah, it's actually easier to to combine principles and profit to change the world. Because I'm wondering if that's the last best hope we have. I mean, I mentioned all the role models that we used to look up to, the sports figures. And, and I mean, you didn't quote a modern sports figure. You quoted Muhammad Ali. You, it, it, the politicians, I mean, let's not even go there. I mean, these role models that we used to look up to – or no people we no longer look up to. I think it's business because, uh, I, and I think it has to. I think there's still some stigma with profits and principles. I mean, but I think that's changing. I mean, do you agree? I mean, I, I mean, I, I know you believe that. Yeah, and I'm hoping to be part of the change. Right, right. Just right. like you know, when I started this stuff, going green was considered really weird and flaky and something only uh, people in hair shirts living in in old tents in in the backwoods would right. do. And it's so mainstream now, and it's been really nice to see that evolution, and I like to think that I was part of that evolution. I like to think that I was part of the evolution of the idea that business can be ethical, that in fact it's easier to build a long-term relationship with a customer if you treat them well. If you screw them, they're gone. They're never coming back. Not only are they never coming back, now instead of telling 10 people in their immediate circle, they're going to tell their 10,000 Facebook friends. You know, United Airlines found this out the hard way when they refused to make good after damaging a certain musician's guitar. Mm -hmm. And that guy made a video called United Breaks Guitars. I haven't seen it in a while, but the last time I looked, 13 million people had seen it. 13 million people are getting a, I don't know, three-minute negative commercial about United Airlines because they wouldn't make good on a $1,000 guitar that they snapped the neck off. It's a different world now. Tom Paxton wrote a very similar song about Republic Airlines 30 years ago, but he didn't have the Internet. Right, right. Shell, when you introduced yourself and told your story, you said you had a social activist background and a marketing background, and you were able to fuse those two and then build a career. What happens if someone's listening to this and they believe in what you're saying and they want to begin to uh, do social good through through their organization, but they say, but I don't have any experience in this. I, I have never, I've never protested or led a movement or built a, or a community organized or did any of these things. Can I, can I even do this? Well, first of all, Todd, you have to look at the likelihood is that they probably have done something in their life. Maybe they went to their school and advocated with the school's teacher to have a, a better, more, more responsive system for their kid. Or maybe they switched their diet because they were aware of the toxic effects of some of the foods they were eating. So most of us have taken one small step somewhere, even if it's something as simply as sorting your recycling. But the other thing is, if you're in business, go to transformpreneur.com, and that's the word transform, and then the second half of entrepreneur, so T-R-A-N-S-F-O-R-M-P-R-E-N-E-U-R. So, yeah, go there. there. You'll see assess your readiness, and you can find two assessments there, one about green business profitability and one about social change business profitability. Fill one or both of those out, and that qualifies you for 15 minutes on the phone with me, and we can see 
where it makes sense for you to go, what your particular business could lean toward in doing this kind of work. Well, is that, and that's a great, I was going to ask this question later, but it's a great time to ask it now. I mean, any organization, large or small, can do this, right? You don't have to be Ben and Jerry's with that international brand to achieve this. Anyone can do this, right? I'm a solopreneur. And, you know, it could be something as simple as the next time your printer dies and you have to buy another printer, buy one that prints two sides. And while you're waiting, before you even do that, change your screen settings so that I used to print stuff if it was five pages or more. And now I'll read far more than that on screen because what I did is I, I bumped up the size of the print. So my 59-year-old eyes are able to handle 20, 30 pages on the screen without a problem now just because I made the print so much bigger. And uh, you use that in the Zoom function either in your browser or in Microsoft Word, and it makes such a difference. Two-part questionnaire. So how does – so the, the, the CEO of an organization decides – this is what he or she thinks is important to the organization, and they begin the process to change the organization to, to, to look at, at how they do business and how they interact with the world uh, in, in the way that you're talking about here. How do they do that? How do they, how do they, that culture, that internal cultural change is not easy, and a lot of the people in the organization, maybe they're there nine to five because it's a job. How do you get all these people bought in? And then flip the roles a bit. What happens if I'm low on the totem pole in an organization and I want to begin to impact this kind of change and have it rise up the ranks? Those are two very, very different problems with the same goal. Any advice and counsel on those two fronts? Okay, I'll take them one at a time. Those are excellent questions. Okay, if you're a CD, CEO who wants to lead or another senior executive who wants to lead, uh, if you're a smaller company, you might look at how Ray Anderson, uh, the late CEO of Interface, did it. They're a major player in the, in the flooring industry, and now he's been dead several years, and that company culture built around environmentally friendly practices has really changed the whole building industry and it continues to do so because the interesting thing is when you initiate something like this in either direction bottom up or top down you tend to get your employees actually excited they become motivated they become happy to go to work more productive taking more initiatives so it's a fascinating process but i mean uh, it's hard to imagine a bigger player than walmart mm. okay and it's also hard to imagine a company that is more profit-driven, bottom-line Uber Alice than Walmart. Walmart had a CEO, three or four of them back, named Lee Scott, and it was a lower-level employee, a mid-manager of some kind, who brought to Lee Scott's attention the power of environmental initiatives to make money and save money. And she got his attention. He got on board. The whole company really made a huge switch. And they, just as one example... And I, I personally choose not to shop at Walmart for a number of reasons, but I'm very, very glad they're out there doing what they are to green the business world because they have discovered it's enormously profitable to do so. They've cut their expenses by billions, and they've added their revenues by billions. Just uh, here's a, a weird little statistic. Walmart actually sells more organic food than Whole Foods does. Huh. And here's the really interesting thing is that they are selling it for the most part to people who've never been in a Whole Foods in their life and ain't going to go there. Right. They've doubled the market by going into the, the working class communities where they have their base and saying, this stuff is good for you and we can bring it to you affordably. I applaud that. I also applaud that they have made all of their suppliers go through all sorts of stuff to de-emphasize the environmental impact 
of their packaging, of their manufacturing. So all of these hundreds and hundreds of companies that are supplying Walmart have had to green their operations if they want to keep supplying Walmart. So ultimately, they're going to do more in the business world to green it than I can. So great, good for them. Now, bottom up, it depends on whether your CEO and your executive board are going to be hostile or friendly to it. More and more, you're not going to find the hostility because they read the business cases and they see that companies like GE, GM, Walmart, Ford, Toyota have just done so well by going green. And they also realize that the competitive advantage of going green is very strong and that very soon the competitive disadvantage of not going green will be strong. And I'm hoping to get to the point where those same things will be true about solving the world's biggest problems, not just the environmental one. So I'm hoping in a decade or two, I have a long-term view, okay? I, I have run a 10-year campaign. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I don't expect this stuff to change overnight, but I'm astounded at how fast it is changing and how much progress we've made in really, really infinitesimal speck of time. Yeah, when you think of it in terms of the big picture of, of time, yeah, it, it's moving quick, which is very exciting. And, and speaking, you mentioned the millennial earlier in the show, and then you mentioned the generation behind them coming up. Uh, honest to goodness, uh, they're they're expecting to work for an organization that has this focus, right? I mean, if, if you're if you're some traditionally corporate organization that's been around for you know decades. You're going to have to shift into this mindset and this focus to be able to to recruit and retain millennials and and those coming right. I mean that's that's as this is what this and is I'm what a they boomer, and we boomers had a similar impact. Uh, companies are a lot less hierarchical, a lot more green, a lot more willing to listen to stuff coming up from the bottom up because of the baby boomers. You know, our parents were the, the men in the gray flannel suits going to work like so many wind-up toys every day in, in a cubicle. That situation is rapidly changing. I think baby boomers, for example, can claim a lot of credit for flexible working conditions and, and telecommuting and stuff like that. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. So running low on time, Shell, before we go, I, I want to spend a few minutes and, and just uh, we, we've talked about a lot of the, the principles and the concepts that, that this book is about. But let's talk about the book itself. Talk about how it's organized. Talk about some of the, the way it's structured and, and some of the resources that are available to someone who's listening to say, OK, it's time for me to shift into, into this way of doing business. Okay. Well, first of all, it's one of the guerrilla marketing books. My late co-author, Jay Conrad Levinson, invented the brand in 1984, and there are about 60 different guerrilla marketing books. One of the things that I kept hearing after my first one with Jay, which was Guerrilla Marketing Goes Green, is, oh, yeah, I read your book five years ago. It's like, no, you didn't. It wasn't out that long. <laughs> um, but I, I, when I do a book, I try to make it highly readable and yet also very, very backed up. So it's organized into uh, four parts, and that's uh, the way of the golden rule, and that's sort of some basic primer of some of the concepts, and then the new green and socially conscious marketing mindset, green business and green marketing, and then using your business to create a better world. And it's well documented. There are about 400 footnotes in the book, but they're all, you don't have to read the footnotes if you don't want to. They're just where I got the information from so that you can see that I didn't make it up. <laughs> right. And it's, it's written in a very, very accessible style. It's designed for people who maybe don't have enormous amounts of time to read, but they can read a chapter or a section maybe every night before they go to bed. 
And I'm really hoping that people read the stuff and put it into practice. It's got hundreds and hundreds of examples, ranging from solopreneurs up to Fortune 50. So it's really quite remarkable to see these stories of how large businesses have made and saved millions and billions of dollars, and small businesses have made a positive impact, even if they only have an employee force of one. Right. Everybody right. in between. I should mention, by the way, that Jack Canfield, a co-creator of the Chicken Soup brand, gave me a quote that's on the front cover, and that Seth Godin, the famous futurist blogger, has a quote on the back cover about what a great book this was. He actually got a start as a guerrilla marketing author years and years ago. And that it's also got four guest essays, including from the authors of Unstoppable and Unstoppable Women, Cynthia Kersey, and the author of Diet for a Small Planet and a lot of other books on food and democracy, Francis Moore LePay, and then two other people who are somewhat lesser known. And it's my 10th book, and I would say it's by far my best book. And I have had several of my books have won awards and been translated, so other people have validated my claim that these books are good, and I say this is the best one yet. Obviously, it's too soon for it to have won any awards. It's just coming out, but um, I imagine it will be one of the books of mine that will have won awards uh, this time a year from now. Well, I suspect it will. It's one of those books that you, if you read it and you like it, but you put it on your bookshelf and take no action, then it's useless. And so hopefully it's one of those books that inspires real change. And yeah, it, it can be by one person from the ground up. And that's the point of this is, is if we all do that, boy, the world suddenly will change in a dramatic way. Yeah, and that one person will be far more effective if he or she gathers some allies. So right. you start with one person, that one person recruits maybe five or 10 people and convinces them that A, this is something worth doing and B, that it's doable. Yep. That was the big challenge we had with Save the Mountain. Everybody agreed nobody should build on this mountain, but we had to fight against the perception that we couldn't win. Right. And that's really what turned the tide is when people saw that, yes, not only could we win, but we were going to win. By the time we defeated the project, we had actually already defeated three-quarters of the project in small pieces because it had gone from 40 homes down to 12. Yep. Yep. Well, you don't need an army of 25,000 people to do it either. It, 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 these amazing things can happen even with a small force. But uh, yeah, you do need allies for sure. Well, Shell, thank you for uh, this book. Thank you for all the important work that you've done over your life and career. Before I let you go, how can people contact you should they have any questions about any of your work? And most importantly, where can they get their hands on a copy of Guerrilla Marketing to Heal the World? Okay. Visit transformpreneur.com. And you can find there a link to order the book from your favorite bookseller or from me if you'd like it autographed. You'll also find the assessments there that I talked about before, that doing those entitles you to some free time with me on the phone. My email address, the best one to reach me is shel at greenandprofitable.com, and the word and is spelled out. And my phone number is 413-586-2388. I'm in U.S. Eastern Time. I welcome your call from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. And I'm sure you will all have this on the show page, uh, Todd, so that people don't have to scramble for a pen right now. Of course. Absolutely. All right. Shell Horowitz, the transformpreneur and the co-author of a new book, Guerrilla Marketing to Heal the World, Combining Principles and Profit to Create the World We Want. Shell, as always, a pleasure to connect. Thanks uh, for joining us. Thank you. All right. That's all the time we have for today. Again, on behalf of my guest, Shell Horowitz, I am Todd Schnick. We'll see you soon on Intrepid Business. Intrepid Business.